0: Well, welcome again. Today we're going to continue our study of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Earlier in the week I had a pipe dream that we would actually finish this section today so we could move on to chapter 5, but alas, as you might expect, that did not happen. The Holy Spirit has allowed me to cover all of one verse today. He is very aware of my limitations. the more i the more I dug into this passage in all seriousness, the more the Lord gave me to say. but I believe I believe there's great value in today's study. I believe this because we live in a culture that is increasingly that increasingly does not value the truth. Many believe the truth is relative and subjective, but this is simply not true, even. Even the statement, truth is relative, is actually self-refuting because it purports to be a truth statement. If truth is relative, then the statement itself is relative itself, which means that it can't be true. Therefore, it is self-defeating. So have you ever wondered why the truth is so important for us as Christians? Well, beloved, we would perish without the truth. Proverbs 29, 18 says, Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is he who keeps the law. Now, I, we could make the argument that the author is saying that we need the truth of God's revelation to restrain us and keep us from perishing. Now, let's dig, dig into God's Word and find out more why the church needs to be a committed, committed community, a community committed to the truth. So let's read Ephesians Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. Actually, we'll we'll focus on 25 through 32 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed, For the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Again, pray that the sermon would be clear, preached with authority, not The preacher's authority, but with your authority. Father, I pray that you would bring clarity to the hearer. And Father, I pray that your word, thanking you that your word will not return void. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this week has been certainly an eventful one, even by the standard of 2020, which has been most tumultuous for our nation and for the church. As you probably know and have heard, President Trump has contracted COVID-19 and is now in the hospital under doctor's care. As the week progressed, we learned that several Republican Party members have contracted this disease. Many of these infections seem to be tied to an event at the White House to introduce the President's Supreme Court nominee, which throws into question this COVID diagnosis throws into question the upcoming election and even the Senate confirmation of uh, Amy Coney Barrett. For us as Christians, this should be a clear reminder not to put our hope in this world, but in Christ. We're praying for the president's quick recovery, but even now we can speculate, if you will, how this will influence the election and Senate confirmation As Christians, though, what I want to get to, as Christians, we should fully realize that life is fragile. It is nothing more than a vapor. And so, the Lord, as such, sovereignly decides the number of days for which we'll live. He has already numbered our president's days. We don't know what will come of this, but we do know that our God sits on the throne. And He has ordained all of these things. Now, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that the president could even be ill or worse all the way up to and beyond the November election. We can't even rule out that he would be, able to, he would be unable to discharge his duties at some point in the future. And one, one wonders how this will affect our struggling nation. It also makes us ponder what change of the power, balance of power will come because of this. A swing in power could change everything for us, for better or for worse. But here's what's interesting, and what we have to understand as the church, it could never, no matter what happens with the president, can never affect the church ultimately, except to make it stronger. Because Christ has promised that He will build His church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, What I want to focus on this morning, though, is the debate this past week. This past Sunday, or Tuesday, we had the first of three scheduled debates. And for those of you who watched the debate, or better, better describe the disaster, it was anything but presidential for either candidate. I was actually amazed at how uncivilized the debate was. Quite frankly, I was personally disgusted at the behavior of all three men, including the moderator. Now, it shouldn't matter what side of the aisle you associate with. You should be appalled at the state of American politics. As Christians, the current situation should shock us, but shouldn't surprise us. Such is the nature of God's wrath as he gives men and women over to their depraved minds to do things which are not proper. So Tuesday night's debate and the state of American politics is just an extension of a culture that has been given over to God. If you were able to watch the debate, though, without turning it off and able to cut through all the personal insults, you may have been appalled at the lack of truth-telling. Lack of truth-telling. There was a steady stream... Of outright lies and shading of the truth to fit each candidate's view of the nation. It's interesting that lying is such a part of American politics that most assume the lies without even batting an eye. It's so bad that it's incredibly difficult to discern the truth. Even as Christians, we can see things completely different from our brothers in Christ because of this shading of the truth. And we can come to vastly different conclusions about. Uh, the world and when these differences aren't approached in love they can cause division in the body of christ back on the debate i was amazed at how easily politicians will twist their words twist words for their political gain they will openly openly stoop to to slandering their opponents with the intent to destroy them politically again this stuff should appall us right But it shouldn't surprise us. Unbelievers will always live according to the lust of the flesh. And in this case, when you add politics into it, unbelieving politicians who thirst for power will not stop at anything, even the destruction of their political opponents. Beloved, as a church, this is what I'm getting at. As a church, we're called to a different way of living. We're called to a life of truth. We're called to a life of righteousness. We're called to a life of holiness, which is in complete contrast to what we saw in that debate stage, right? Well, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 17 of this letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul had reminded the church of their old way of life, and He warned them not to fall back into it. As As much as we'd like to think that we've gotten better, that we've evolved, if you will, somehow we, that we want to think that we're better than our ancestors, but yet we still can fall into those same patterns of sin. Beloved, there's nothing new under the sun. This is just as... Important for us today to understand as it was for the church at Ephesus uh, 2,000 years ago. Now I should remind you that we're studying the final three chapters of Ephesians where Paul outlines the worthy walk of the believer. According to Paul, those who are in the body of Christ are to walk with all humility, gentleness, and patience, showing tolerance for one another, loving one another, being diligent to preserve unity amongst the believers. Brethren, this walk looks completely different than our former walk, right? Which was characterized by living in the lust of the flesh, by indulging of the, in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Beloved, you and I, I think Phil mentioned it earlier, you and I, in, in before Christ, we were by nature children of wrath. We were no different than the world. We were no different than those sitting on that debate stage on Tuesday night. It's with this backdrop that Paul warned the church not to fall back into its former patterns. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been studying chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, and in these verses, Paul describes two main commands for the walk of holiness for the believer. First command was you're not to walk or live as the heathen ones. In other words, we're not to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. And in that state, the the mind becomes useless and cannot comprehend God. And the person who walks in that state finds themselves separated from the life of God. So we're not to walk as them, but we're to walk as the Holy One, as Christ. As such, we're to walk in conformance to the truth. That's verses 20 through 21. After giving the church the negative command not to walk as the Gentile walk, Paul reminds them of how they were taught Christ who embodies the truth. As Christians, we're now in Christ, which has major implications regarding our Christian walk. We are to walk in Christ. We are to be, we are being conformed to his image, the image of Christ. Paul taught this truth in Romans 8 29 says this for those whom he foreknew that's christians he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren beloved if you are being conformed to his image don't you think that you ought to start walking in truth as he And we are also to walk in congruity congruity with With renewal. That's verses 20 through 24. In some ways, in these verses, Paul restates the same thing. Put simply, in these verses, Paul reminds the church that they were saved and they were transformed into a new creation, a new man. The old man was in the image of Adam. The new man is in the image of Christ Jesus. As Christians, then we are new creatures in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Positionally God has made us new. Positionally the old man is gone and the new has come. According to Paul's theology and hopefully yours as well, we have been given the mind of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 2:16. In other words, we've been given the ability to discern spiritual things, the things of God. As such, our minds are being renewed day by day as we follow Christ and we trust in His Word. As we're immersed in His Word, as we continue to study and meditate on His Word, then we become more and more like Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, we should live according to these truths. Now this brings us to today's passage, which moves us from positional holiness to what I would call, or what I do call, practical holiness. We are called to walk in, starting in verse 25, consistency with the law of Christ. We're called to walk in consistency with the law of Christ. Now, before we look at the text, I want you to know that Paul has been carefully building a case for our walk of holiness. If you're walking in the flesh you might think that Christianity is just a bunch of rules to follow. But Paul has been careful not to reduce the holy walk to a set of rules we must adhere to. As Christians, we tend to reduce the Christian walk into this set of rules. You know, we don't smoke, we don't drink, we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who what? Do. I guess you could go with the King James Version of that quote. Thou shalt not smoke, thou shalt not chew. Thou shalt not consort with that Jezebel. It doesn't actually work that well. But in America, we have associated Christianity with things like prohibition. The mid-19th century saw the rise of abstinence. And during that time, time it is said that Abraham Lincoln said this, the following quote to his children, or used the following quote to his children. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't swear, don't gamble, don't lie, don't cheat. Love your fellow man as well as God, love truth, love virtue, and be happy. Now, if he would have just said the last part of that, it would have been much better, I believe. Because what happens is, is we can, as we focus on the rules, then we begin to want to moralize the world. In the mid-19th century, or the late 19th century, fundamentalist Christians were part of a of prohibition which was the widespread movement to uh, improve public morals in the United States. Their efforts were effective because it wasn't long before the federal government passed the laws of prohibition, but those laws didn't last long. People found ways around them, and many folks got rich doing so. By the end of World War II, alcohol was back on the open market, and after the war, the 50s gave way to the free love of the 60s and the 70s. Late 20th century politics saw the rise of the moral majority. This was another Christian effort to clean up the morals of our nation. All the while, Christianity was being characterized more by a list of do's and don'ts than by Christ Himself. You get the picture? Many in the church seem to be more concerned about making laws to moralize moralize than they were concerned about sharing the life-changing message of the gospel. Even today... The push in the church seems to be to find political solutions to our nation's problems. Sadly, in the push to moralize and Christianize our nation, many have made the same mistake as the Pharisees, and that's the point. You see, we have missed the entire point of the law to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Beloved, when we walk in conformity to Christ, we do so to display His glory and His beauty to an unbelieving world. We do so to, be, to show the goodness of Christ, not to try to get people to follow a bunch of rules. Now, having said that, as Christians, we are called to walk in holiness. But here's the nuance. We walk in holiness because we have been made holy we obey the law of christ because we are in christ we have been raised up and seated with him in the heavenly he has purchased us with his blood at the cross he died to save us and to deliver us from our sins therefore we obey him we obey our new master because it gives us great joy to do so Harold Honer, the commentator that I quite often quote, says this, The lifestyle of the old person is integrally tied to the new person, or to the person. So, the lifestyle of the old person is integrally tied to the person. And so, the lifestyle and the position of the new person should be integrally bound. Once the new person has been put on at conversion, one subsequent life should reflect what he or she is you get the picture we're a new creation in christ that new creation has been put on at conversion our life after such after that's happened our subsequent life must reflect who who we are now in christ this brings us to the text in verse 25 as we study these verses i want you to notice paul's focus is on the behavior of the church at Ephesus it's not on the behavior of the rest of the city of Ephesus he's already said what those who are not in Christ are like right that's chapter 2 verses 1 they're dead in their trespasses and sins they're following after this the course of this world that's what they're like so so Paul's focus is not on their behavior but on the behavior of the church now, that observation should be informative as we interact with our culture. You see, we should be much more concerned about our walk of holiness than we are about trying to change the behavior of the culture. In some ways, in some ways, these verses are self-explanatory. But let's take the time and walk through them. So starting and looking at your text in verse 25, Paul gives a series of commands, a series of commands which are consistent to or with the law of Christ and His coming kingdom. So you've got those in your your bulletin. As believers, we are to There's a list of things that we need to stop doing and a list of things that we need to start doing. We need to stop lying and start speaking the truth. We need to stop succumbing to anger, and start resolving our conflicts. We need to stop stealing and start sharing. (coughs) We need to stop speaking filth and start using edifying words. And we need to stop seething and slandering and start being kind. Now let's look at the first one. We need to stop lying and start speaking the truth. Now again, I want to be careful to make sure that we understand that this, that Paul is coming at this from our position in Christ. That was the whole point of, of making rules. As Christians, we want rules. As people, we want rules. We want to follow the rules. But in reality, this is more about who we are than it is about what we do. Though, who we are should impact what we do. Look at verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Friends, our Lord calls for us as Christians to lay aside lying and deceiving one another and to start speaking the truth. As unbelievers, as unbelievers, you and I lived a life of deceit. It was common for us. But as believers, we're called to live a life of truth. According to chapter 4, verse 15, Paul said we are to be a people who speak the truth in love. In other words, we are to be truth-tellers. Clearly, the Scriptures have much to say about telling the truth and about falsehood. As Jesus warned in John eight forty four, He said this, You are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and a father of lies. So, beloved, when we speak falsehood, we are speaking more like the devil. We're acting more like the devil than we are like Christ. If we don't speak the truth, then we cannot be like Christ. We cannot be like our Lord Jesus. As believers, we are to stop deceiving and start speaking the truth with our neighbors. In other words, we're to speak the things that correspond to reality. We are to stop twisting the truth for our sinful purpose and start speaking the, speaking the real truth. Beloved, even a subtle twisting of the truth To make our case has become a deception. A little leaven, right? A little lie. Just a little twisting makes the whole thing a lie. For the Christian, we must speak the things which rightly correspond to the truth of God's Word. Jesus proclaimed in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except or by, 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 by through me, or but through me. In John 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Now, in Ephesians 4.25, there's an eschatological nuance I want you to see. In this verse, Paul quotes Zechariah 8.16 when he says, Speak, Truth each one of you with his neighbor. I want you to turn back to Zechariah. It's in a, as my old pastor used to say, it's in the crispy pages of your Bible. Uh, the, the pages nobody reads. I'm just kidding. Hopefully you read them. Turn to Zechariah 8, verses 1 through 3. In verse 1, it says, Then the, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, the great, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Listen to this. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of what? City of truth. It's the NAS. And the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the Holy Mountain. According to these verses, Jerusalem in the future will be called the city of truth. Now, it's instructive here that holiness and truth are closely related. If you want to walk in holiness, you must be willing to walk in the truth. You must humbly desire the truth. Now, I would argue that this passage teaches that despite our past, their past transgressions, that is, There will come a day when Israel will be restored. Therefore, Zechariah speaks of a time of restoration when the Lord will, according to verse 7, save His people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and He will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be His people. Now look in verse 8, the end of verse 8. And He says this, the Lord says, And I will be their God in what? in truth and righteousness. So God has promised to restore His people Israel in truth and in righteousness. Then starting in verse 13, Zechariah gives the description of this coming kingdom. A kingdom that will be what? It will be based on truth and righteousness. Look at verse 13. And it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah... And house of Israel, so I will save you, so that you may become a blessing. Do not fear; let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts: Just as I purposed to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I have not relented. So again, so I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. And in verse 16, then, we see Paul's quote from Ephesians 4. In verse 16, it says this, There are things which you should do. Speak truth. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Gates, that is. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another. And do not love perjury, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Now, Based on this passage, I would argue that Jesus' coming kingdom will be one based on truth and righteousness. Now, obviously, obviously, and this is why I brought up the whole debate from Tuesday night, this is in complete, and the state of American politics, this is in complete contrast to our current world, which is based on instead of truth and righteousness based on lies and deception. Now, let me make a, a connection for us. As the church, our message is to make, or our mission, that is, is to make disciples of the nations. That's Matthew 28, 19 and 20. We are to announce the victory of the King, King Jesus. We are to announce His coming what? His coming kingdom which is a kingdom that's based on what? Truth and righteousness, which is the antithesis, which is the exact opposite of what we see today. So the gospel, then, is first and foremost the good news that the true king is victorious over sin and death, and that he will usher in his kingdom of truth and righteousness. In Acts chapter 1, verse 7, you can turn there if you'd like. The disciples were asking the Lord if He was restoring, if at that time, after the resurrection and before the ascension, if it was at that time He was restoring the kingdom to Israel. Now, I think this question is a reference to Zechariah 8 and other prophecies of this coming kingdom. The disciples knew and they understood that the kingdom would be restored to Israel, fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament, including Zechariah eight, that this coming kingdom of truth and righteousness would be would is is really gonna happen. Jesus' answer makes complete sense and helps us understand why we, as the church, are to live in truth and righteousness as as Jesus' disciples. He says this in verse seven. This is This is Acts 1-7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Said another way, the kingdom is coming. It's coming. Zechariah 8 was exactly right. It's coming. But it's not for you to know the Father's plan. Your job... As the church, your job is to proclaim the coming king and to live according to his ways. To live in light of that coming kingdom. That's a kingdom of truth and righteousness. He says this very thing in verse 8. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. According to... Zechariah 8.8, 8, His kingdom will be a kingdom based on truth and righteousness. So those who are His witnesses in this age are to lay aside falsehood and speak truth with each one of, which, with each one of you with his neighbor. Get that out in a second. Beloved church, you must... In order to be effective in spreading the gospel, making disciples, we must, you must, lay aside all falsehood and walk in the truth. It's crucial, absolutely crucial, that we speak the truth into this age of deception. It is mission critical for us to understand the truth of God's Word so that we can rightly preach it to a world full of lies. Brethren, our truth-telling, though, must start in the church. That is truly Paul's focus here. The best way for us to speak the truth with our neighbor is to continually meditate on the truths of God. God's Word. According to Psalm 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. We are to avoid taking counsel from the world, beloved. We are to avoid taking counsel from those who deal in deceit. Beloved, we are to stay away from all such associations which will drag us down into sinfulness. On the other hand, verse 2, this is Psalm 1-2, but his delight, this is the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he does what? He meditates day and night. Beloved, we study and delight in God's Word to ensure that our words and our actions best correspond to reality. Make sure you get that. We study and delight in God's Word to ensure that our words and actions best correspond to reality. What is reality? What is reality? Is it what we see in this world? Is it the lies and deception of this world? No, it's the truth of God's Word. Church, we need to be a people of the book, the Word of God, the Bible. Listen to this lengthy quote by Charles Spurgeon. Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the Word of God. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till, it, till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical... Expressions or the historic facts, but is, it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in spiritual lang- or scriptural language. And your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. And he says this. He says this. I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what i mean read anything of his and you will see that it is almost like reading the bible itself you had read it until read it till his very soul he had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture and though his writings are charmingly full of poetry yet he cannot give us his pilgrim's progress that sweetest of all prose poems without continually making us feel and say why this man is a living Bible. He says this of John Bunyan, Prick him anywhere. His blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. End quote. Brethren, my prayer for our church is that our spirit would be flavored with the words of the Lord. This morning we talked, as men, about studying the Word of God. We talked about just glancing over and and having a, a, a surface knowledge of it. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is a knowledge that goes deep within us, that changes us deep within now, considering the, considering the nature of our political climate, I've thought a lot about the nature of the truth. As, as we've discussed for the Christian, the Word of God, rightly understood, rightly interpreted, is our only source of truth. A.W. Tozer says this about the Bible. The Bible is the inevitable outcome of God's continuous speech. It is the infallible declaration of His mind. Beloved, if the the Word of God is the infallible declaration of the Creator's mind, then we should recognize the need for us to be conformed to its truth. As such, our reality and how we see the world must be conformed to the truth of God's Word and it is more important than ever for the christian to be conformed to the truth of scripture even in the church even in the church there are great divisions there's great there's great discussion around the tr- what what is really the truth we need to be so in depth in the in the word of god we need to be so deep in the word of god that we can spiritually discern the things of god through the holy spirit who dwells within us 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, 2.12 that is, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Now, this aligns with Ephesians 1, 12, and 13. We have received the Spirit of God who lives within us. He does this so that we may know the things of God. Now, we should see the progression here. I think Paul is primarily speaking in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I think he's primarily speaking of revelation received by the writers of the Scriptures. But we cannot miss that the text we have received must be rightly understood. This is also the work of the Spirit of God. He says in verse 13, These things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. In other words... The Holy Spirit gave the writers of Scripture the words of Scripture. He has given us the ability to discern He given us, that is, the ability to discern the truths of Scripture and then speak the truth by the Spirit. But according to verse fourteen, this is first Corinthians two fourteen, he says this, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Said another way. Unbelievers have no ability to understand the truth. They have no ability to understand the things of the Spirit. The truth of God is foolishness to those who are perishing. But that shouldn't shock us, right? Beloved, only those who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them can understand the things of the Spirit. Now, we must say, I must say that, This is not some elite knowledge which is only available to a few. I want to make sure you understand that. This is truth which is available to anyone who will trust in the Lord Jesus. This truth which is available even to the children if they've given their hearts to Christ. Verse 15. 1 Corinthians 2.15 But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? Then he says this in verse 16. But we have the mind of Christ. We have been given the ability through the indwelling Holy Spirit and through His Word to know the very thoughts of our Lord Jesus. And as I said earlier, I've thought a lot about truth in this age, and truth in our in our culture. And I'm amazed that the church is flailing as we try to discern the truth. I'm I'm. <clears throat> <clears throat> I'm amazed that the church is flailing around as we try to discern the truth. I'm dismayed. I'm dismayed that we are seeing such divisions when it comes to the truth of the gospel. But I'm absolutely convinced that Grace Bible Church, that this church must be a people of the Word of God. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, we must bleed bibline. Given the difficulty of discerning the truth in our culture, we must be a people of the Word. Everything we do, everything we see, everything that we, everything that, that, that we come in contact with must be filtered through a correct understanding of God's Word. Now I would argue that's the reason in Deuteronomy 17 that God commanded the kings as follows. He says this. Deuteronomy 17:18. Now it shall come about when the king sits on his throne the throne of his kingdom he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law. And these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Brethren, church, we would do well to do the same. We would do well to read and meditate on the truth of God's word, so that we can discern the truth in this wayward time. By the way, you should see the connection from these verses in Deuteronomy 17 to Psalm 1. The the king who is blessed will meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And we shouldn't miss that this promise is extended to all of God's people. Let's finish out this verse in verse 25. Paul writes that we're to speak truth... Each one of you with his neighbor. We should recognize that our neighbor is defined as everyone with whom we come in contact. Even as Christians, we, struggle, we can struggle with this, with this definition because we're drawn to people who live and act like us. Church, I'm saddened when Christians can't get along with one another based on ancillary, secondary issues. If you find yourself in a church where you don't fit in on the basis of doctrine and theology, on the basis of truth, then you need to find another church. But if you find yourself not being able to fit in because of secondary issues, then you need to evaluate yourself, right? You see, we're called to be neighborly to everyone. Everyone who crosses our paths is to be treated as our neighbor. <clears throat> and Paul is saying that we need to speak to every one of us, need to speak truth to our neighbor. Yes, even those we disagree with Republican, Democrat, Independent, or you know, the don't care guys out there. Whether they believe that we should wear a mask or not wear a mask. Whether they're homeschooling or whether they're publicly educating or whether they're private schooling, it doesn't matter. They're still our neighbors. Whether they're a health nut or a slob, they're still our neighbors. Whether they're relatively private or open to everyone, they're still our neighbor. You see, everyone who crosses your path is your neighbor. And we need to be truthful to them. But in the words of Paul in Galatians 6.10, he says this, So then... While we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I think this verse can be applied here. We are to speak truth with everyone, but this is especially true among those who are of the household of faith. Now, let me speak to something that we can all struggle with. We're to speak the truth but we're to do so with love and kindness. This can be illustrated with our men and our wives by the age-old question that you might get from your wife. You know the one. Does this outfit make me look fat? What are we to do? Well, the best answer may not be yes, even if it's true. Nor should we, you say something like, it's not the dress that makes you look fat. The best answer, men, as you know, is the, tr- is the truth seasoned with kindness. You may, you may say something like, honey, I love you no matter what you wear, but that outfit is not the most flattering. Now, I may not be the most qualified to help you, but you get the point. When we're to speak, When we speak the truth, we are to speak it in love. As John MacArthur aptly puts it, he says this, Love and truth must be maintained in perfect balance. Truth is never to be abandoned in the name of love, but love is not to be deposed in the name of truth. Truth without love has no decency. It's just brutality. On the other hand, love without truth has no character. It's just hypocrisy. End quote. As believers, beloved we are to speak the truth in love. We are to tell the truth to one another, but it has to be it has to be in love. Because as John MacArthur says, that if we don't do it in love, it's just brutality. But if we if we have love but no truth, it has no character, so therefore it becomes hypocrisy. Now, as believers, we're to speak the truth one another, because look at your text in verse chapter four, verse twenty-five, we are members of one another here paul brings in the imagery of the body brethren we are as a church we're completely dependent upon one another and as such we must be able to trust one another just think of the body your your physical body when your body becomes diseased or injured you can't trust that, the mem- that member of, of the body that's diseased to perform its duties. When your, when your eye is diseased, it can't properly guide you. When your hand is injured, it can no longer protect you. When your leg has been lost, it can no longer carry you places. The list, as you know, goes on and on. Beloved, if we can't live in the truth with one another, then we cannot trust one another which will cripple the body of Christ. And a crippled body can't effectively uh, carry out its mission to make disciples of the nations. Friends, as I've said over the past couple of weeks, we can't get around it. The church is called to walk in holiness. This means we must walk in truth. And to walk in truth is to walk like our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the truth. The Apostle John writes in John 1. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The question is, do we believe those things? Do we believe that Jesus is truly the Son of God? Do you believe that He created the world by the word of His power? Do you believe that true life is found in Him alone? In John 1.14, John goes on to reveal this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, you are, if you are a believer, you are in Christ who is full of grace and truth. You are in Him by His doing. As Paul puts it, you have been saved by grace through faith. In First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, it says, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boast boast in the Lord. There's a song that some of you may know. It's called, Knowing You. The second verse goes like this. Now my heart's desire is to know you more, to be found in you and known as yours, to possess by faith what I could not earn, an all-surpassing gift of righteousness. Church, I pray that you are in Christ and that you recognize that you have been given this all-surpassing gift of righteousness. And I pray that you will walk according to His truth and righteousness, representing the kingdom to come. I pray that you understand that these things are yours by faith. I also pray for those who are not believing here today. I pray that you will believe in Christ. I pray that you will believe in His life and His death, on a cross, and in His resurrection. I pray that you would trust in God alone for salvation. I pray that in a world of chaos and in a world of deception, that you would come to understand that He is the embodiment of truth. I'll end with this passage of Scripture that I believe is applicable to those who profess Christ and for those who are not in Him. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 it says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Stop right there. You've heard the truth. You've heard the gospel. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, If you go on sinning willfully, if you go on living a life of deceit, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You wonder. You know some people want to. Many want to boast in their of their freedoms in Christ, right? It gives them license to sin. It's not what this verse is saying. It doesn't. It doesn't. If we go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment, and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Beloved, that's what should drive us as Christians. That's what should put fire under us, is knowing that there are a lot, the lost are out there. The lost need to know Christ. We need to live according to His coming kingdom, so that they, so that we can share the message of Christ, so that they see the glory of Christ. But we should never forget that outside of Christ, outside of the truth truth is only the expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that beloved is the truth let us pray heavenly father we thank you this day that Lord, you were good to us. As we discussed this morning in our men's group, there are two ways to look at it. Those of us who are in Christ... who experience the goodness, your goodness, and those who are outside of Christ, who will experience your judgment. Father, I pray as a church, as believers, that we would speak the truth. that we would speak of your goodness and your love and your kindness and your mercy and your grace. But we'd also be willing to speak of your judgment. Of sin. Of the need to walk in holiness. Of our need for your word. Lord, I pray that as a church we would grasp the seriousness of walking in the truth. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are full of grace and truth. In Christ's name, amen.